This is Conducting Business. I'm Naomi Lewin. Earlier this year, the Metropolitan Museum of Art said it would rename its newly remodeled plaza and fountains for David H. Koch, the billionaire conservative activist who gave $65 million towards the renovation. Koch has his name on a few prominent buildings around town, including the former New York State Theater at Lincoln Center and the American Museum of Natural History's Dinosaur Wing. He is one of the most visible examples of naming rights, a trend that some say is a necessary part of philanthropy. Others argue that giving should be a selfless, anonymous act. Joining us to discuss this are three guests. Here in the studio, Robin Pogrebin, culture reporter at the New York Times. On the line, Joan Dessens, director of institutional advancement at the Glimmerglass Festival, and Patricia Illingworth, professor of philosophy at Northeastern University and editor of Giving Well, the Ethics of Philanthropy. Robin, I'm going to start with you. Why have naming rights become so common in arts philanthropy in the last several years? I think with the fall off in uh, giving from the government and corporations and foundations, um, the private sector is even more essential than it was in the past, and that means that the incentives kind of have to be bigger and become just more important. I mean, in the past, there was perhaps a nobility in giving anonymously. But now, if donors are perhaps interested in seeing their names on things, then <clears throat> excuse me, organizations do need to perhaps make the trade-offs involved in, in making that available to them. And naming rights come with much bigger gifts. I mean, it depends. People are naming everything now from bathrooms in a theater to, you know, theater seats and uh, hallways. But, but if you're, you're going to have your name on the on the outside, that's a, a pretty big price tag. Well, your Times colleague Patrick McGeehan wrote last month that $100 million seems to be the minimum amount for... That's the going rate. I often think it's sort of the, the front page litmus test for us. We've, you know, but then now they've become more frequent, so you can't put that news on the front page every time. But we had Stephen Schwartzman give $100 million to the New York Public Library, and it was obviously controversial because now his name is actually inscribed on the outside and it's technically called the Stephen Schwartzman Public Library. You had David Koch give $100 million to the New York State Theater, which is now no longer the New York State Theater. Um, and you have, but then you have like Henry Kravis giving a hundred million to Columbia Business School, and uh, Perlman giving a hundred million. So it's it's definitely become more common, and it, you know they get their names on things. Joan, let me turn to you at Glimmerglass. You have a number of sponsorship opportunities listed on your website. How successful has that been getting people to give? Well, it's interesting because the impetus to name things in this community has changed over the years. My involvement with Glimmer Class goes back to the early 90s, and during the 90s, there was less interest in having your name associated with something in this particular setting. Uh, Glimmer Class being in Cooperstown, New York, which is a lot smaller than... In Cooperstown, New York, but we're an international festival that draws patrons from around the world, and basically every state of the union. So our constituency is sophisticated and upscale as well as rural. But nonetheless, the original funders of Glimmer Glass and a lot of the ongoing patrons were more reluctant to have their name 
associated with something. They were giving for the cause to support it in general rather than um, kind of, I don't want to use the word show-off, but rather than, you know, for the sake of being recognized. And we still have a lot of that atmosphere here. However, that has changed a lot, and I think some of the reason is partially because of uh, the factors that Robin mentioned, but I also believe we're just in a different era where... um, so is it a, like an, an old money versus new money kind uh, of thing? It's a little bit of old money versus new money, but it is also just a, a more um, exposed society in general. People are very blatant with you know Facebook exposure and other forms of Internet exposure. We're all out there. So I think that people are more comfortable having their name out there. So that's one thing. But in general, I think that um, it, is, it ha- is increasingly becoming an attraction. We've grown the number of people who care to associate their gifts with recognition in just the last three years quite considerably. I also worked in two cities. I worked in major gifts in San Francisco, and I was also general director of an opera company in Omaha in the Midwest. And in cities versus a rural setting like this, I found that it was more interesting to people to have their name kind of out there on marquees or a little or on buildings or on projects. Okay, I want to bring the ethicist (laughs) into this right now. Patricia, Mm -hmm. what does an ethicist say about this? Is there an argument that the arts are a community resource and giving should be anonymous, should be selfless? Yeah, I think that that is a good intuition. I mean, the arts seem to be a place where people from all walks of life and all social classes can gather together in solidarity. And so if people sort of, you know, billionaires are branding institutions uh, and organizations with their names, that sort of can alienate other people, I think. So it can undermine social cohesion around the arts. Well, and in fact, I I have heard that there are concert goers or patrons of the arts in, say, for example, New York, who are not necessarily happy about walking into the Coke Theater. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But I think the point is they're going to walk in anyway. I mean, it's it, they you? may object, but it's not going to keep them away. And so to the extent that it's a price to pay for an arts organization, you know, Time passes and people get used to things. I mean, when the Roundabout Theater renamed the Selwyn Theater, the American Airlines Theater, it was kind of one of the most brazen changes and so clearly, you know, kind of crass in its way. But, you know, people have accepted the American Airlines Theater on 42nd Street and they go to see Spider-Man there. Well, could there be an argument made that there is a difference between the American Airlines Theater, which is a corporate entity, and David Koch, who has a definite personal political agenda. It is, but, you know, the, the incentive goes a long way back for giving. You know, partly it's, you know, it's magnanimous and generous, and partly it's about cachet. And, and New York's, um, you know, world of philanthropy is very much about it. That's, that's what you get in return is some status, connections, and prominence. Patricia, does um, seeing a name on a building encourage other people to do the well, same? Well, I think it can potentially create a culture of giving. You know, if one person does it, then other people want to do it. It's sort of if some people are going to be praised for it and get celebrity and attention and recognition for giving, then other people may follow suit. I mean, to, to me, one of the main problems with it is that it incentivizes giving to certain sectors, uh, namely sectors that can offer naming rights. 
So, for example, arts, culture, education, sports. Whereas some other sectors like the food bank or global poverty or global health may not be able to offer naming rights and may not get philanthropy because of that. And so I think a lot of people in the sort of philanthropy and ethics field feel that decisions about where money is allocated should really be based on need and efficiency, you know, so where is the greatest need and also, you know, how can the money be used most effectively to meet that need. And if people are really driven not by those factors but by considerations of their own acclaim and celebrity, that the, the money may not be used as well as it could be. Uh, Joan, you've been involved with major giving for Glimmerglass and for other institutions. You said, have you ever found any negative repercussions from having a particular name attached to something? Not having a name. I, I've only found positive results from having a name attached to something. I think it has encouraged others to give without question. The only negative repercussion I once had, which was fairly huge, was in surprising a donor with a major award in public for being very supportive and philanthropic to the institution. And at the honors for the day, we at San Francisco Opera honored somebody who absolutely did not want the recognition and was publicly furious about it. So there's a... a sort of the antithesis of that funny scene in Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry David gives because he wants his name on there and then Ted Danson gives but lets everybody know that he's given but he's anonymous. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. It was it was one of those lessons learned never recognize or honor someone without discussing it first. A surprise does not work. <laughs> But other than that, in other than something like that, I only see it as a positive. It, but it's not for every setting, and it's not for every activity, and it can diminish the quality or value of certain things. There, there are things that the the patrons in general, not other donors, but the general patronage, will feel that's been commercialized. If you over name things. It kind of takes away from the pure cultural experience that a lot of people expect when they come to a setting. I I think that the difficulty is that uh, donors don't necessarily want to give to the operating costs of institutions, the the unsexy stuff like air conditioning and just, you know, the payroll. So donors, you know, want to give, they always say, to bricks and mortar. They, they want to give to these expansions, renovations, building projects. And so organizations kind of have to take it where they can. And I, I think even though perhaps there might have been some controversy at the, at the, among the, at the board level when, let's say, Coke gave $100 million and, and, and the New York State Theater was renamed, and purists objected, I know of at least a couple. It's not as if they made a public show of that opposition. And you know, they just were not in a position to look a gift horse in the mouth. These organizations, you know, need private support. I have been in a setting where um, a gift was turned away because of the insistence on the donor for how the money was used or would be used and that donor's role in steering some of the artistic policy was questioned. And uh, the trustees of the organization felt that it wasn't worth the, va- the, the amount of money to deal with that. 
And let me turn to the ethicist. Mm -hmm. When it comes to something like that, if you have a donor with an agenda or if you have an agenda for your organization or if you have a donor with a political agenda that may or may not jive with your particular agenda, how do organizations deal with this? Well, they have to be very careful, I think, and not even from an ethical point of view, but just from good business perspective. Um, it seems that they should be very careful about the donors that they affiliate with. I mean, there are, you know, sometimes organizations can, you know, alienate the community, and I think they do have to be careful about that. Universities have had that experience. Um, I know of museums, for example, that have had to oust board members who have been, let's say, indicted for white-collar crimes. And certainly you wouldn't want a mass murderer's name on your building. But I think when you have a situation like David Koch and the politics, you know, may be objectionable to maybe perhaps even a majority of the board, that's where they have to kind of separate the money from the uh, ideology. Well, then that brings us to the permanence of naming rights. Famously, here in New York, we had Alberto Villar, who had pledged an enormous amount of money or not enormous by Coke standards, but a large amount of money to the Metropolitan Opera. He also pledged to the Opera Covent Garden. And then when he didn't make good on the payments and was ultimately convicted for fraud, the name disappeared That's right. from mm-hmm. the building. I mean, I think the other problem with naming rights, which is, a, again, it depends on your perspective. For an organization, it not, may not be a problem, but I think for the sake, from the perspective of the community, it is a problem. And that is that Branding an organization with somebody's name can really exacerbate the problem of philanthropy and undue influence. You know that. I mean, we like to think that the democratic process is what determines the, the social agenda, and yet when philanthropists start acting like governments, in a sense, and you know, funding things that governments really ought to be funding, they can determine the social agenda. And I think naming rights can exacerbate that. So if you have one person that's naming, you know, five things in a city, that person just assumes a kind of influence that is probably not so good for the community. That's right. The one sense that I get is that there is a pretty bright line, though, in terms of, let's say, when it comes to cultural organizations, artistic interference, that that's the real cardinal sin. A donor cannot sort of because they give a lot metal in artistic choices. And, and once you go down that road, it's, you know, a slippery slope and the organization is compromised. So my sense is that at least organizations hew to that principle pretty yeah. strongly. Yes, but I think the influence can be other than just, you know, I mean, it can be political influence, right? If somebody has their name on five buildings and perhaps the organization themselves will not defer to that person, but the community may, I mean, they may just, you know, they'll dig, they create a kind of goodwill that otherwise wouldn't be there just simply because their name is everywhere. I find it very interesting that David Koch has said that he wants his naming rights pretty much to expire after 50 years. Mm -hmm. How unusual is that? I think that would be typical. Um, We have a name for our theater here that was established. In Glimmerglass. At Glimmerglass, it's the Alice Bush Opera Theater, and it was established when the Opera House here was built in 1987. And we approached the family. The theater and its complex is now more than 25 years old, and we have capital needs on site that need to be done. And we approached them, and they were very willing. They felt they had done their part, and they were willing to relinquish their name in favor of somebody who would come along and be the lead funder on improvements that we need. And most entities, be it a, a business or, you know, a telephone, you know, like Pac Bell Park or something like that, 
they anticipate they're only going in for a limited amount of time anyway. Going back to the reaction on naming from the patronage, change is very difficult for longstanding uh, individuals to accept. Those who have treasured their institution for so long, the idea of change, even if it's for a good reason, a new namer has come along, to them it is still the company they fell in love with, the the institution they fell in love with, and the original name is often something that they are reluctant to give up and won't. Well, that's the problem we have here with Avery Fisher Hall. Right. I was just going to mention Avery Fisher Hall, where the family does want to keep the name, and Lincoln Center has agreed to to honor that. I think they actually have a legal agreement. Um, so when that hall is finally renovated, they're going to try to name just about everything else, including the internal auditorium. But it will continue to be called Avery Fisher Hall. And I'm sure there are still people who, who call the Coke Theater the State Theater. It's going to take some generations for the change to actually sink in so that people don't remember the past. And so, by that point, it'll be renamed. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, so do we hold these nonprofit institutions to a different standard than, say, sports stadiums or maybe even Broadway theaters? Yeah, I mean, I think that they are we, – we don't expect them to be spending money uh, on things that aren't actually essential for, you know, running the – the organization. And so if if you could do the business of the organization without spending this money, it seems many people would prefer that a nonprofit do that. Um, Now, some people would argue that no nonprofit should function much the way that ordinary businesses do, because that's the only way that they can be successful in in a world where business dominates. But I do think that we, we have different standards for them. And I think donors anticipate that there'll be different standards. One reason why these naming rights are so popular right now is because there is a market value to them. They do create goodwill for the person who um, has the naming right. And given that they, uh, there's some market value, they maybe the charitable deduction should be reduced for them. The way you take a, you know, the way when somebody makes a donation to a dinner and, you know, they, you, you take off the cost of the meal and deduct the remaining portion. I mean, it's, there would be some trouble around pinning down the, the economic value of a naming right, but it does seem to me that there probably is quite a bit of economic value to it. But when you think about, I mean, like, for example, Lincoln Center recently had its spring gala and the, and the tables were $250,000. And when you walked around the room, you saw, uh, in terms of the signs that who was at each table, a lot of them were corporation names. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that, that arguably gives them some visibility, but it's also, you can't really imagine individuals, many individuals being able to afford that price yeah. tag for mm-hmm. a table. So to some extent, um, they're the only ones who are, who are able to give at that level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, the yep. tables will go away after the dinner That's is over. Right. But, uh, names come down. The, the names don't come off the buildings or whatever. Legion Arts in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, recently had a naming opportunity for the toilets in its facility. What are the strangest naming opportunities any of you have ever come across? That one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's always been amazing to me that anybody would want their name on a bathroom, but... but Apparently, you know, that's happening quite a bit. One of the things that's interesting about this is buildings go up and open and start functioning, and there are still sort of expenses to be paid. So organizations have to still generate, figure out what else they can name in the building once it's already built. 
And it's kind of just like a shopping list to go out there and find somebody who's going to put their name on things. But it can be a hallway. I don't think it's been a closet. But there have been sort of remarkable small areas, dressing rooms that have names. So I was someplace recently where there were literally, uh, there was something like a doorknob named, and I'm not going to say where, (laughs) but you do want to create opportunities where there are things that a lot of loyal average people can participate in. In the old days, it it used to be a bunch of gold bricks on a wall or something where, you know, maybe for even something as small as $1,000, you could get your name up on a wall or on a sign. Now I think people are getting a little more creative and offering something for low-end people to feel that uh, an institution that they've treasured for so long, will they will have participated in its refurbishment. At the same time, I would say that the price is going up. I mean, I think, let's say, the Rubenstein Atrium, at, it was $10 million at, at Lincoln Center, and so the entire atrium is called Rubenstein. I'm not sure, you know, maybe that's still the going rate, but I would imagine that as you have more and more of these $100 million gifts, it's going to be a higher threshold. Thank you all very much for joining us today. Thank you, Naomi. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. We've been talking naming rights. Our guests were New York Times reporter Robin Pogerbin, Patricia Illingworth, the editor of Giving Well, the Ethics of Philanthropy, and from the Glimmerglass Festival, Joan Dessens. Brian Wise was our producer and Bill O'Neill, our engineer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening.